Hello, and welcome to the GCU podcast. Okay, we're going to get started. So feel free to take a seat if you're uh, getting a coffee or something. Come and uh, join us. Uh, my name is Luke, uh, part of the leadership here. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm going to speak today on the entire Bible. Um, so you will be pleased to know that I'm not going to speak uh, on it verse by verse. We're not going to go through it each individual verse at a time. But if you've got one of the Bibles on the tables, um, just open it. Uh, it's a powerful thing. It's the, the Word of God. So uh, it would be a shame for it to be closed. So feel free to just open the book. Uh, you might have brought your own one. You might have one on your phone. Um, so we're going to speak about the entire Bible. What is it? What, how does it work? And how does it speak to us? And where do we fit in that picture? Imagine with me for a minute uh, that we found, probably in, in Stratford, and you, you look on the BBC News and you see that in Stratford, in a very old house, in a dusty old loft, they find in a chest that's been locked for years and years a really, really old manuscript. And they look at it and then they discover, no way, this is a Shakespeare play. This is a bona fide Shakespeare play that's never seen the light of day. No one knew about this one. And, you, and they check out all the... They sort of date their paper and they work out how long it must have been there for and who used to own the house. And they track it and they go, this is actually a brand new Shakespeare play. But we've never seen this. This is a like game changer if you were into Shakespeare. This would be like huge news. Uh, so it would be a shame if you just went, well, that's interesting. Let's lock it back up in the box and uh, let's leave it there. So it would, be, it would be more interesting to say, let's try and put this play on. Everyone loves Shakespeare. It's a, it's, they're fascinating plays, but there's only trouble, one trouble with this one which we found. There's five acts to this Shakespeare play, and we've got Act 1, 2, 3, and 4. We've got the beginning of Act 5, and we've got the end of Act 5, but there's a bit missing. So you'll notice here on the catwalk, we've got Acts 1, we've got Acts 2, we've got Acts 3, we've got Acts 4, and then we've got Acts 5. But when we get to it, there's only just the start of it, and then there's a gap. There's this gap here, but we do know how the play ends. So this is what they find. I mean, don't worry, they haven't actually found this play. Um, this is just... Imagine what would we do? How would we put this play on, this Shakespeare play? How would we do it? Because it would be a shame if you just said, well, we've, we're missing a bit, so it's really cool that we found this new play, but let's never perform it anywhere. Let's just lock it up again. One thing that we could do is we could say, well, let's get all the experts in Shakespeare. Let's get all the people who really know their Shakespeare, uh, the historians and the, the directors and all the English literature uh, experts to, who really understand Shakespeare to try and write the missing bit. So we've got this bit, and then there's this bit that's missing. So it starts there, ends there. Let's try and get someone to script it. The only trouble is, as you'd imagine, one person would have an opinion of what would be the script, and another person would say, no, I don't think that that character would say that. I, don't, I think they'd say this, and it'd go like this in order to end there. So probably a better way to put it on, and it would be more in keeping with the genre that Shakespeare was writing in and was living in, the way of, write, of, of scripting plays, would be to say to, to the best directors and producers and actors 
uh, in the Shakespeare world to say, will you learn this play? Will you learn it back to front so you really know it? And then when we get to this play, each night, the actors are prepared and trained enough so well that when they get to that bit where the script leaves off, they have to ad-lib, they have to improvise the play, because they know how it's going to end. They know that each, each character will know, well, I've got to end up here, and I've got to end up over there. So they know how the play ends, so they'd need to improvise the middle bit, and that would be potentially the best way of putting on that imaginary Shakespeare play, play which we just found. This is a really helpful analogy and a, a helpful way of viewing the entirety of Scripture. And we find ourselves in this way of looking at it. So Act 1 in uh, the Bible is creation. We have a good God who creates a good world. We have uh, this entire setup where he says, I want to create people. They're going to be very good. I'm going to create these image bearers, these creations which will carry my image. I want them to be my likeness. I want them to bring glory to me. Uh, in, in the Bible, it says that we are God's workmanship. The Greek word is poema, which, which is like the word poetry. We're effectively God's poetry when he writes us. And he says, yeah, I want, I want these people to reflect my glory. We are, this, is, this is not, his creating humankind is not some kind of moral test to see whether humans can survive and not sin enough or whatever. That's not his heart for why he creates us. He creates us good and he wants to be in good relationship with us. So that's act one. Act two in the Bible is the fall where humans make a decision to go their own way and it ends in human empire and rebellion. All that stuff with the Tower of Babel, and when it's just like if humans are just left up to their own devices, they start to kill each other, and everything goes terribly wrong. So that's Act Two. Act Three is the story of Israel. It's God, God's relationship with a people. It's uh, God saying, "Well, if I can work with you as a group, right from Abraham, right through all the um, Old Testament prophets." Uh, and the, the nation of Israel into exile, out of exile, in, into captivity and out of it. It's his relationship, all the way up to the person of Jesus. And Jesus is Act 4, when he is on earth. These are the Gospels as we know them. And you'll notice that the Gospel writers go out of their way to remind us that this is one story, so that Scripture is an entire narrative and it all points towards Jesus from all angles. So the Gospel, John starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word, which is how the, uh, well, it, 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 he is alluding to how this story starts in the beginning. And so he, he's saying, this is the same story that I'm telling. It's not a new story. This is one story. Um, or whether it is uh, the genealogies that you see in the other Gospels, uh, each of the Gospel writers have their own way of saying this is one narrative. But this is a significant chapter. This is kind of the fulcrum of the story. And then here you have the ascension of Jesus, like the, the, uh, when Jesus goes to heaven and, he, and he's in his heavenly body. It's a bit of a new chapter. He's risen from the dead and he, and he goes to uh, heaven. And then 
you have the early church and the Pen- and Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes to earth and then Paul and uh, Silas and Peter and others start spreading the, world, uh, the word across the known world. So that's where the story leaves off. Thankfully, because John went and had a big dream on the island of Patmos, we've got this bit, which is how the story ends but hasn't ended yet in a kind of vision. So this is the finishing story, so we know where it ends. But this is where we live. And I think this is such a crucial way to see the whole of Scripture. In other words, we're in it. We're in God's story. He's written us into his story. So how have you seen the Bible? Is this how you have viewed it in the past? It is easy to just see it as a bit of a scary book, isn't it? Maybe you see it like a rule book or a list of fairly bizarre Aesop fable type things. Or perhaps it's just a history book of of things that have happened once a long time ago. Perhaps some of it is basically irrelevant now that that we're a bit more modern. Maybe uh, it's a random collection of fairly nice sentiments. Maybe it is a self-help, feel-good, positive meme generator for Instagram. Um, But but scripture is one story. If If we'd have had the wherewithal, what I would have really liked is to have had a tree here and a tree at the other end, and then a huge pole connecting, like a big arc, because really the scripture is one massive arc, and there's a, the tree of life at the start of it, and the tree of life at the end of it in Revelation, and God's life throws, flows throughout it. But so often we see it as separate bits that are disconnected. And so we might read one verse in the Bible, because maybe it makes us feel better. Or we might read one verse in the Bible and maybe it confuses us and we read it just for what it is in that moment. But I'd put it to you, I'd suggest that that is an unhelpful way of reading the Bible because one verse does mean what it says, but it only means what it says in the context of everything. That's like saying, oh, to be and not to be, that is the question. What a great line about existentialism. Uh, and just leaving it at that, which, okay, that, that is, is a good line. Um, I'm sure it'll catch on, but it only means what it means in the context of the whole play in Hamlet. So, uh, like, you can't really just lift a, a one verse from the Bible, but how often do we do that? How often do we see the Bible used like that, maybe to back up something that we want it to mean? So, I wonder how you have seen the Bible? How have you viewed it? Uh, I think partly why my heart is, is, is really beating for us to look at this at G2 is that we are living in a culture where many people nowadays haven't grown up uh, in the church. Many people don't know how to read the Bible and that's n- there's no criticism in me saying that. It's just an observation of how the world is. Many people don't really know how to read the Bible and feel a bit overwhelmed by how to do it. And so we need to embrace that this is, this is where we are. Let's speak with one another about how we're reading the Bible because the word is the word of God and the spirit is the word of God. Um, 
it, the, the, it cuts through. The Holy Spirit has breathed into this book. This is my Bible that I read, and my dad gave me this one. He used to read it, and dad died 14 years ago, so this Bible means a lot to me. And he carried this around when he preached with him, uh, when he, and I, I would go with him when I was a boy when he was preaching, and now I carry it. And uh, so these things mean a lot to us because of the story that we embody, because we are made for story. My, this Bible is just a book to most people, but to me it means more because it fits into the whole story of my life. And in the same way, the, the way that Scripture has spoken into my life fits within the whole arc of my life, and I fit within the whole arc of the whole uh, of creation, as do you. So, and I think if it's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is breathed, it's alive... This is the only book that is alive, actually, um, and it is the most bought book. It's the most purchased book around the world. If the Bible was allowed to be in the bestsellers charts, it would be number one every week, so it's not allowed to be in the, in the bestsellers charts, literally every single week in the, in the world. So, and it's also the most stolen book, which I quite like. Um, <laughs> but um, it's how we fight our battles. We need the sword. And if we are in today's culture finding ourselves overwhelmed and finding it difficult to cope, we definitely need our weaponry as those who believe. This is the thing that says you were written into the script of God. He created you and he loves you and he says you're good, you're very good. The world doesn't say that about who you are. The world's got all sorts of stuff to say about who you are that isn't great. But this, this book says he created you to be good. And then because the world was so, so much of a mess, he sent Jesus to save you because he loved you so much. And there's always hope because of what Jesus has done. You can always find your way back to God and he will always take you back. That's the great news of Jesus, which you can find in there and your story in it. But how we read it is difficult. There's challenges. Uh, when the, uh, the first five books of the Bible were written uh, called the Torah and the Jewish people, and Jesus would have read those, they read them in huge scrolls. And they would have unraveled those huge scrolls and it, they would have read them aloud to one another in the synagogues and the temples. And, and uh, it was important to be able to unscroll that whole thing in, in a really long line so that they could see the entire narrative going on. So they didn't just focus on one bit. In fact, there was a, a real hoo-ha in the early church when they made the scriptures into one book because they wanted to bind them all together as a, a one canon, they call it, like all all the important bits that are God-breathed in one book. They wanted to get it all in one place. But there's a load of people who were like, well, that's a bad idea because when you open the Bible, then you're only going to be able to see what's on this page and you won't be able to see the whole scriptures to out, rolled out like a scroll. Well, we've got used to the book thing now and there's lots of us who, are, who like having an actual book in front of us. And some of us find it difficult when you have to look on a phone. And if you read your Bible on a phone, we, f we think, oh, that's frustrating because you can't see what was the previous chapter and the next chapter so easily. You can see it, but it's not quite as simple. So, but I would say that's just a good challenge for us to need to get over rather than uh, a reason to not read the Bible <laughs> 
on our phones. We've got to find ways to embrace, okay, that's what that piece of technology allows me to do, but I want to work hard to make sure I see the whole picture uh, of Scripture in one. Because the risk is otherwise, we look at Scripture as a way to serve me, to serve us individually. There's something called moralistic therapeutic deism, which is written about, which is how we read the Bible so often in today's culture. So moralistic, in other words, how we live. Therapeutic, making me feel better. And deism, about God. So I go to God to make me feel better about myself. So I look for scriptures that make me feel better about myself. And uh, version, which is the Bible app that many people have on their phone, they did a, a survey recently, or they published their results uh, a few years ago, of Uh, the most saved and searched for scriptures. And these are all verses which make us feel better about ourselves. Whereas in previous generations, the most remembered verses would have been things like, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Uh, But that, that verse was absolutely nowhere in the list because that's a tough verse. That's a, that's a costly verse uh, to, to remember. So it doesn't make us feel quite as good about ourselves. So there's a challenge. We need to help people engage with Scripture. I actually think if you could uh, give somebody the Bible and help them just read it, it would change who they are. You may have heard me tell this story before, but a few years ago um, we had a a, a number of Chinese international students uh, give their lives to Jesus, and there was one year where we baptized 13 uh, Chinese students uh, in this room, and that was amazing. Uh, In part of that group, um, there was a girl called Chloe, um, who's, I won't try and say her Chinese name because I can't quite remember how to say it accurately, but she was called Chloe. She uh, gave her life to Jesus, and in week one of uh, her faith life, uh, having given her life to Jesus, she was meeting up with our student worker to talk through a difficulty that she had, because she was reading the Bible like it was like, you know, living bread, which it is. (laughs) Uh, It was actual food to her. It was sustaining her, and she was like, couldn't get enough of it. But she'd been reading this thing in Matthew 6, and and she said, well, Jesus says, there's hardly anyone who takes this narrow path, and most people take the broad road uh, but that can't be true because you're telling me there's two billion Christians in the world, so uh, they can't all be on that narrow road. So either they're not really following Jesus or Jesus was wrong and loads of people will take the broad road or the narrow path. So which one is it? So that's quite a good discipleship question to be asking a week into your journey of following Jesus. So she's been reading the Bible and wants to know why. Meets up with a student worker to ask that question and brings along with her Melody, who was just happened to be there, uh, and we're, they were going to lectures together. So they, but they had a, um, a Chinese Bible that's been translated into Chinese, so that was just on the thing. While she's asking her question in, uh, in Vanborough, York Uni, um, the, the other girl, Melody, starts reading it, um, and they look over five minutes later, she's in floods of tears, Melody, and they're like, whoa, whoa, what's, what's going on, are you okay? Uh, and she's like, what is this book? What is it? And they're like, well, it, it's, it's the Bible. She's like, what is the Bible? And they're like, it's, it's the Christian book. Um, and she's just started reading at the beginning, uh, which is, I guess, where we begin books, isn't it? But it maybe isn't where you advise someone to start reading the Bible. But she started reading there. She's in Genesis, and she floods with tears. She says, no one's ever told me that I was made. I didn't know I was made. I didn't know I was loved. 
I didn't know God thought I was good. So she became a Christian. Uh, she still, that was, I think, 12 years ago. She's now working for uh, a Christian um, ministry to Chinese students and, and uh, is still following Jesus. That was the start of her journey because Scripture just spoke to her because it's a sword, because it's a weapon. Because why don't we get this? Why don't we help people to read this book more? Because we think it's intimidating. Stri- scripture is sometimes best taken like a long, refreshing drink. Imagine coming in from a hot day, you haven't had a drink for ages, you get in and you, you can pick the uh, beverage. I don't want to, I don't want to layer over anything, but you know, a nice, tall, <laughs> refreshing <laughs> beverage of your choice. Sometimes scripture is like that and it's just like, yes, this is what I needed. And it's worth drink, drinking loads of it, like reading, sometimes read 10 chapters, like read Isaiah 50 to 60 all in one go just to let it affect you wash over you and refresh you and sometimes scripture is like and again you'll have to imagine what liquid this is but a really intense small liquid that has lots and lots of different properties to it that are there to be savored and enjoyed you pick the liquid but basically scripture sometimes you need to have just one verse and then just boil it down to one word and let it like cogitate in you and like let it mull around and notice the different angles that you could look at it from and it have textures and flavor and let the, let the imagination go wild with it. So there's different ways of engaging with scripture. But we are not alone in this task because in the early church, they also had a culture that had no idea to how to read the scriptures because the New Testament, well, they were living it. It was being written as they were going. People were recording it in the New Testament, but they had the Old Testament, but they were going to a Gentile world, and a mainly non-Jewish world, and they had no idea what the Torah was, and they had Greek gods and Roman gods and all sorts of stuff like that. So they had to explain how to read the story of God as one thing, and they were living in it as well. So we're in good company if we're in a world in which people are not really sure how to read the Scriptures. Okay, let me get you to chat to the person next to you. How do you read the Bible? Let's say this is a judgment-free zone. You can be totally honest. Uh, If you hardly ever read it, please feel free to say that. Uh, You'd be probably pretty normal if that was the case. But also feel free to say if if you read it quite a bit and if you enjoy it. Let's just allow this to be a space where you can say the truth. So how do you read the Bible? What's it like for you? Okay, go for it. Okay, sounds like there's been good discussions happening in the room. Uh, If you want to bring those to a close just for now, but hold that thought and continue it into your small groups uh, and uh, into the rest of our time together today. How How we read the Bible is so crucial. And if we see it as an active thing, when we're reading, when we're listening, when we're thinking, how does this speak to me today? Yes, what does it actually say in the script, in the scriptures? But in, what does it actually say? What did it mean in that context? What does it mean in the context of the whole arc of scripture, the whole narrative? And what does it say to me today? How does it challenge me today? Uh, do you remember when we, were, when we were back here looking at this uh, analogy? Uh, and we were thinking about putting this play on, and we were thinking, well, this is Act 1, creation, the fall, then the story of Israel, and then the life of Jesus, and then the early church, going to finish in Revelation, but here we are in this bit. Hello, you're caught up. Um, (laughs) 
then we, we need to know how to improvise, how to, how to f- do this thing of doing this play. How do we improvise? We can learn a lot, when we, uh, f- particularly from music uh, and from the world of theatre. In, mus- in music, uh, there are all sorts of grades that you need to go through, aren't there? And qualifications that you can get and disciplines you can learn, scales and arpeggios and... I went up to grade three at French Horn, and that's about as far as I managed. Um, and um, so I'm not really the best person to ask, but I understand there are even more things you can do after grade eight uh, to, to um, excel in the world of music. But even w- sometimes with those people who get right to the top, there can be a real fear of lifting their eyes from sheet music and just playing as they feel. So if, the, if they were following music but it accidentally fell off the music stand, they would really panic and freeze. And that's something that uh, other people are much more comfortable with. And the, in the genre of jazz, um, I don't know if you've ever listened to much jazz. Um, I, I went to uh, a jazz concert. One of our friends who's Ukrainian, uh, he said he was really into jazz and they just live around the corner from us. So I thought, I'll take him out to a night of jazz. And then I realised when we got there, it was actually acid jazz. And it was, he was into classical jazz and it was terrible. But we went, uh, Ado and I went with him and we had a great night uh, chatting. But the music was pretty odd. But if you're into it, you can see what they're doing. You can see how they're playing around. But that's because they know their disciplines. Any good jazz musician doesn't just make it up. They know their disciplines and they really understand the rhythms and the tempos and the, uh, the key that they're in. And, and then they know how that they can go off that and play around what might be understood to be the normal pattern of music. Um, otherwise, it's just a terrible, terrible racket. Um, And in the same way, when uh, actors are learning to improvise, they also have to learn how to do the disciplines of of theatre. And and in all the actor training that they do, working out how to move their body, how to express themselves, how to overplay things so that it comes across well on a stage. They have to learn all of those things, how to learn a script by heart, how to interact with other people in a way that's going to make it look like it makes sense. They've got to learn that and then they can ad lib and they can improvise with one another. Um, When I was a teenager, we used to watch Whose Line Is It Anyway? I don't know if that's still accessible. (laughs) Probably is on Dave, I guess. Anyway, um, but (laughs) it's really worth watching if you've ever, if you've not seen it before. Uh, And you have uh, the host who will give the four panellists uh, they'll say, right, I'm going to have you and th- you this time, and you're going to have to act out. And then they've got no idea what he's going to say, and I- he'll say something absolutely bizarre, like, you're in a dentist's waiting room, but one of you is a unicorn, and one of you is, you know, uh, ha- has only th- one leg or something. So then they've all of a sudden got to act this thing out in a way that would make sense. And uh, it's hilariously funny what they come out with. But that's because, oh, hello, we have a dog in our midst. <laughs> Let's improvise the moment well and welcome, welcome the dog into Act 5 of the play. Uh, so, uh, you know, <laughs> what a fantastic moment. Come and say hi. How are you doing? <laughs> this is a fantastic uh, thing to have happened because the point I'm trying to relay is you never quite know what's going to happen in any moment. 
<laughs> and, and we need to be able to roll with certain things. So, for example, in the early church, they had to improvise to the fact that Judas was no longer with them. And how are we going to decide who the next disciple is? Because Jesus picked all of his disciples, and now we've got to find one. We can't, and there's plenty of other options. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I mean, just let's just take a minute, because that was, that was just amazing, wasn't it? <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't want to like, make too much of, draw attention to them, so that's why I tried not to too much, but you know, it's a little bit hard not to. Um, so they had to improvise with who was going to be another disciple, and so they end up drawing lots, because they were like, well, there's perfectly good options, so they found that as a way of doing it. Or they got kicked out of various places, or they were imprisoned in various places, or they were... Uh, uh, held captive in, in different cities or they were fleeing or they were shipwrecked. Now this didn't come on the manual. When the, when the uh, early church were making their way around the known world trying to spread the good news of Jesus, they were having to improvise because they had learnt the scriptures, they'd got the, the Torah, they, were, they lived and breathed it, they had it in the rhythm, the rhythms of prayer were part of their daily life. They knew the scriptures well. They spent time with Jesus. They learned the patterns of his ways. And so they were able to live to that pattern. But that meant they could face an unknown circumstance and improvise in that context. So no one plans for a shipwreck, but then you have to know what to do next. Or when they were in prison in Acts and there's a huge earthquake and uh, they could run away, then that's the moment when they improvise because they say, no, we're not going to run away and escape. Instead, we're going to stay here and be uh, an example of how Jesus would have been. And in that day, he, they, or they lead the jailer's uh, entire family to Jesus and they're all baptized. But that is only happening because they're improvising with what they've known and learned. And then they're also having the Holy Spirit speak to them. This is crucial as a way of seeing how we read the Bible and our place in that story because it's an active way of living to think every situation you face that's difficult, every obstacle you have to overcome, every opportunity you're given, every advantage you can make the most of, if you do that from the perspective of I've learned the disciplines of grace that I've been taught through the rhythms of the Bible, through reading my scriptures, and I know what God's like, I know his character, I know what his heart is like. Now I can figure out, because I've got the Holy Spirit, what I should do in this moment and how I should live. And personally, I think the church doesn't do this enough. We don't improvise enough because we think we want to be good, we want to do things right, we don't want to do anything wrong. So we tend to be more like, particularly in this cultural context that we live in, we tend to be more like musicians who know the Bible quite well, or the sheet music quite well, but we don't want to take our eyes off the sheet music. We're afraid of what will happen if we get it wrong. And I think the Holy Spirit's waiting for us in the improvisation moment of Act 5, going, come on, I'm with you, let's at least have a go. You'd, I'd rather you were reading the scriptures and having a go at improvising your moment than just desperately trying not to get it wrong, which is more like the parable of the talents with the guy who just buries it and does nothing with it at all. And so therefore culture doesn't change because that is how the gospel infiltrates and changes culture. So we only have things like CAP or things like IJM which we heard about last week, because in the instance of CAP, someone has said, this doesn't make sense, you can't read the story of 
uh, God and go, oh, it's fine for people to be in debt. In fact, it's explicitly clear throughout that God is against that. He's a, a God of jubilee, which means cancellation of debts and restarting again. He doesn't, it's not in God's character for, to, for, to have loads of people in, uh, in, in like unmanageable debt. So therefore, part of the gospel being outworked in the lives of people who live here has been to set up CAP. Christians Against Poverty, which is then alleviating that debt and helping people to escape from the crushing uh, power that debt can have on people and helping them to live in freedom. And then often they come to meet Jesus as a result of that. But even if they didn't, it would have been worth helping them out of it because God loves them. So he wants them not to be in that place. The same thing for IJM. It is not in God's character to want people to be enslaved or abused or mistreated or whatever. So International Justice Mission exists to outwork that freedom movement across the world. So what is it, and I guess this is where we need to work together as a church, but I think for every single one of us, there are moments in our lives where we need to improvise. And what's your Act 5 moment? Where, where do you need to improvise? Even when I'm speaking now, I reckon there's some people here who are thinking, I know what this is. In my, t- in my time at university, I know when I've got to improvise my story of God. Maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe it's in the family, in, in at home. Maybe it's somewhere else. But you know there's a dream that God has put in your heart that would fit with the story of God. It's always been something you've been passionate about and you know you need to be brave because improvisation takes bravery. You can read the scriptures all you like and if you never do anything with them, you're just like the guy who buried his talent and did nothing with it. This is a huge gift. It's a huge sword and and, and it's crazy to not use it. There's people who will find it easier and people who will find it harder. Um, You might have heard... Uh, left brain, right brain speaking. Sometimes um, we, we, people talk about, oh, this, this guy's an absolute left brain person, or she, she's real left brain type of person. Left brain people are like logical uh, engineering types uh, who can see this equals this, so this is how the world is. Um, they can design things really clearly. They can potentially express something very factfully and clearly in that kind of a way. And uh, then there's right brain people and the right half of our brain uh, tends to be a little bit more imaginative and creative and dreaming um, and uh, lends itself to more of that kind of a, uh, a thing, a more artistic side potentially. Now, the, because we've both got left, every single person's got a left brain and a right side of the brain, uh, it's just that we can be more dominant on one or the other. The church has left and right brain people within it and we need both in the mix. There's going to be left brain people who struggle to lift their eyes from the word and go, but what does it actually say? And there's going to be right brain people who might be like, but I can just think of a better way. But unless we work together, then you, we get really, really conservative churches that never want to do anything other than read the Bible. And we get really, really wacky churches who hardly ever want to read the Bible, but they just want to get on and do stuff and experience the Holy Spirit. And the word and spirit have to meet together, otherwise we completely miss it. We need to learn to support one another in that. An example for you, we had a, uh, a student years ago 
uh, who was really prophetic. She could hear the word of God so clearly uh, and accurately and would prophesy into people's lives. And I remember challenging her, your challenge is you need to know your Bible better than anyone else. You need to really, really learn, because you hear the voice of God pretty accurately. Uh, In fact, when Hannah was uh, about seven weeks pregnant, uh, she, she was praying in a group and just said, I just see you, Hannah, holding a, a baby boy. And we'd not told anyone at all, right? So she did a public meeting going, I see you holding a baby boy. Uh, it's just really, really clear. I just see you holding a baby boy. I don't know if that means anything. Hannah's like, thanks, I'll, I'll weigh it. I'll, I'll see it. I, I, don't, I don't know. And we had to tell her afterwards, you're the first person we've told, but Hannah's pregnant. But that was an accurate word. But you maybe want to just think about how you deliver those <laughs> words. Because so... <laughs> uh, we need to support one another because uh, we need both. We need to know the word, be in the word, read it regularly, allow it to speak to us, challenge one another from it. But we also need to listen to the Holy Spirit in order to do both things. That's what we need to do to improvise in our life. So I w- I'd, I'd love us to uh, worship together, but um, I also want to challenge us to be a bit brave um, can I, can I ask you to stand for, for a bit, please? Um, my question for you is, what is God inviting you to step into? What is the thing that you've been thinking about when I've been speaking? What's the thing that you know God's calling me to do this? Uh, I need to be brave. There's something I need to improvise Maybe you're already doing it and you want encouragement. Um, So if if there's anyone who feels like that, and I I think there are, I'd like to invite you to come and stand in this part of the room. So you're at the back of the room. Everyone's not going to look at you. Don't worry. Um, But see where it says V here and you're in this moment. You're improvising. Um, I'd just like you to come and step out there and the rest of us will surround you in prayer. And we'll pray for you. as we um, sing together and worship God, I could encourage you to continue asking him, where do I fit in this story? What do you want from me? As you find yourselves going throughout your week, ask that question. How do I improvise here? What should we do here, Holy Spirit? How should we handle this one? How should I reply to that person? How should I treat this person? So Holy Spirit, help us as we do that.